Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases, RTPFL, in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Seema Yasmin, the author of Viral BS, Medical Myths and Why We Fall for Them. Can your zip code predict where you will die? Should your your space out childhood vaccines? Does taco powder cause cancer? Why do some doctors recommend e-cigarettes while other doctors recommend you stay away from them? Health information and misinformation is all around us, and it can be hard to separate the two. A long history of unethical medical experiments and medical mistakes along with a host of celebrities spewing anti-science beliefs, has left many wary of science and the scientists who say they should be trusted. How can we unravel the knots of fact and fiction to find out what should we should really be concerned about and what we can laugh off? In Viral BS, medical journalist, doctor, professor, and a formal, former, former CDC uh, disease detective, Seema Yasmin, driven by a need to set the record straight, dissects some of the most widely circulating medical myths and pseudoscience. Exploring how epidemics of misinformation and disinformation can spread faster than microbes, Dr. Yasmin asks why bad science is sometimes more believable and contagious than the facts. It's easy to read chapter, uh, chapters cover a specific myth, whether it has endured for many years or hit the headlines more recently. Well, Seema, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. All right. I would like to start uh, by asking, um, how has the pandemic affected you and your work? I mean, it's affected my work in that this topic of the way false information spreads during epidemics is what I've been working on for the best part of five or six years. So it's almost like, you know, you're sitting in your corner and this is what you focus on and suddenly everyone's talking about it. And it's like, yay, let's all get on the same page. Well, one of the things that's been frustrating for me over the past few years as I studied the spread of misinformation and disinformation about health is a lot of public health agencies around the world would say to me, oh, but we don't think that's a big deal, or we don't think that's a big threat to public health. They would say, oh, you know, anti-vaccine movements, they're small, they're fringe movements. And I've kind of been jumping up and down in my corner saying, no, but the impact can be really, really big and detrimental to public health. So that's how it's affected my work. Um, I guess it's brought to the forefront the work that I do, place a lot more emphasis on it. And then because your question asked like just how the pandemic has affected me, I think like many people, I've been frustrated by the response, fed up 
by some people not following public health interventions, government sometimes not making that easy to do, not paying living wages, not not paying people to stay at home when they're sick, for example. And just in my close circle of friends and among family too, I've I've lost two relatives um, and and two two dear friends. So that's been really hard. I'm really sorry about that. Um, Did you have uh, perhaps maybe coping strategies that you could share uh, uh, in this really hard time for many people? One thing that's been helpful for me to remember are two things. Uh, the first is that grief takes time and you have to make time for it. And the second thing is that my mom was telling me this, that grief is not always linear. So you can feel like, oh, I've been grieving. I've processed this person's passing. And you feel like you've moved past some things. And then suddenly it will hit you like it's fresh again. And that's been important for me to remember that that's not a failure of the grieving. It's just part of the process. The thing that was hard is that like I lost one of my friends very early on. At least it felt very early on in the pandemic to me, March of 2020, then another friend in April. And then my relatives who died, died later last year, had an aunt and a great aunt who passed away. And it just felt like so much grief upon grief and like one death after the other in the context of millions dying around the world and that always weighing on you too so for anyone who's listening I don't have you know miraculous magical advice I wish I could make pain go away but what I've learned is that it's actually really important to sit with the pain to make time to feel all your feelings and it's so helpful to talk about it with trusted friends and close family. That's an excellent advice that uh, unfortunately many could uh, relate to during this time. So could you tell us more about yourself, your background? Sure. So I was born and raised in England. I was uh, brought up in a very tight-knit conservative immigrant community in the middle of the UK, literally in a part called the Midlands. And that upbringing the religiousness of it, the tight-knitness of it, really kind of made me think more later in life about how we come to believe the things that we believe and how we reinforce certain perspectives um, of the world. Uh, There aren't any doctors in my family. I was the first to go to medical school. And it was important for me to be the kind of caring and compassionate doctor who worked with different communities because I didn't always see that happening effectively when I was a kid. And I saw a lot of like doctors talking down to people. And I really despised that and still do. So I went to medical school thinking you know, I'd go back and serve in my community. And I did for a while. But I quite quickly, as a hospital doctor, became frustrated with the way that we provided care. And I felt like We kind of just patched people up in the hospital to the point that they were well enough to go home, but knowing they'd come back the next week or the next month with the same condition, maybe just more progressed. So for example, the hospital I worked at, we saw a lot of injecting drug users. They'd come in with an infected abscess and we would drain that and send them back out to live who knows where. And then they'd come back the next month with hepatitis C or with HIV. And I felt like, we weren't dealing with the root causes of illness. And that there was this weird, bizarre, silly separation between social services and, and healthcare. And a friend of mine, a mentor said, oh, you sound like you're really actually interested in public health, like thinking not just about the person when they're in hospital, but like 10 things about them and their environment that led to them getting sick in the first place. 
So she said, there's this thing you can do in the US. Um, you can serve as an officer in the Epidemic Intelligence Service, which is a federal government service, a group of doctors and scientists who are trained to be deployed to wherever there's an epidemic. And your job as an officer in the Epidemic Intelligence Service is to investigate the spread of disease and stop contagion, stop epidemics. And anyone who watched Contagion, the movie last year, will be familiar with the Epidemic Intelligence Service because I had the job that Kate Winslet's character plays in that. And the point of that is that you're not just responding in the acute phase to the epidemic, you do that as well. But in the aftermath of the epidemic, you're thinking, why did this outbreak happen here? Why did these people get sick? Why did they get so sick? How was this disease able to spread here? Because we see over and over again, it's not just about a virus. It's not just about a bacteria. It's about the human set of circumstances that let those pathogens spread. Something I noticed when I was a disease detective at the CDC was that no matter where I was sent, it was never just a virus that was spreading. It was never just a disease. In tandem with the spread of infection would always be the spread of information. Sometimes good information, sometimes it was medical myths, health hoaxes, you know, misinformation and disinformation. And that had its own contagious nature too. And I was like, hold on a second, all that stuff, all the rumors that are circulating are really powerful. They can drive people towards or away from treatment. They can make it easier or impossible for me to do my job as a disease detective. So why are we in public health so focused on just the pathogen and dismissive about the communication and the information aspect. And that frustration led me to journalism school. So after working at CDC for a few years, I went to journalism school because I thought, you know, if I'm going to be an effective public health doctor, I'm going to need to be really, really good at communicating with the public and providing information to the public. So I didn't know what I would do necessarily with that training. But while I was in journalism school, I got a job offer from a newspaper in Texas. And I thought, why not put this new training into action? So I took that job in 2014, worked half the time as a health and science newspaper reporter. The other half the week, I taught public health at the local university, the University of Texas. And just when I was thinking, this is interesting, but like, what have, why have I made this career choice? Right as that happened, I, right as I took up that new job at the newspaper, Ebola arrived in Dallas, in the city I was living in. And so like that convergence of my skill sets in epidemiology and epidemics and medicine and, and journalism all came together. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. And in your book, you combine this deep curiosity that you mentioned that you had uh, from earlier on with the new, new toolkit that you had um, developed to, uh, to be able to investigate. So can you tell us how come you came around to writing this book? Yeah, for sure. So when I was a newspaper reporter, I did like, you know, my breaking story, breaking news stories and feature stories. But while I was reporting, I was just always getting bombarded with questions about all sorts of medical things, whether they were in the news or not in the news. Readers would write in and ask me about vaccines and autism. They'd ask me about the chemtrails that you see in the sky, that airplanes leave behind, were those toxic? They would ask me about the medical infighting over the use of cholesterol-lowering drugs. They asked me, should they be smoking e-cigarettes if they wanted to quit cigarettes or not? Like, it was just so much. It made me realize, oh, yeah, a lot of this stuff isn't clear-cut, is it? Because you can have a headline that says, drinking diet soda causes Alzheimer's. And people will think, oh, my gosh, I better stop. 
But then when you start digging and looking at the study, that's not actually what the study found. Like it's more complicated than that. So then I turned some of the columns that I had written called Debunked, where I kind of took a dive into people's questions. I turned that into this book and added new material as well in the hopes that by kind of each chapter answering a particular question, we can all start to understand, like, why is it we come to believe the things that we believe, whether this information start off in the same way. But more than that, like, how can we become really savvy at separating fact from fiction when it comes to health and science? And even deeper than that, how can we start interrogating what even is a fact? Because the whole way that knowledge is created, the way that science is done, isn't clear cut. And historically, science has been responsible for really egregious, unethical experiments on vulnerable people. So therefore, why do we just tell people all the time, very broadly, trust in science, believe in science, when the history of science is replete with instances that demonstrate actually science and scientists are no way neutral, and we need systems of accountability. So that's how I came to to writing this book and just really being passionate about this topic of people having access to the best available health information. Um, In your book, what really jumped out uh, to me is the choice of the topics. Can Nutella really cause cancer or should you eat your placenta? What was the rationale for choosing these? It was really hard deciding what to leave out of the book. And at some point, you just don't want to end up with something that's like 20 inches thick. But I went with some of the questions that I got asked most frequently and some of the questions that I thought, oh, this is a useful thing to dive into, not just for getting to the bottom of this particular piece of misinformation, but because this example teaches us something about how a study could be misinterpreted, about how a newspaper headline could be misleading, for example. So each myth, and there are truths in there too that you may not think could ever be true because they're so bad, but each myth or each truth also digs into that question of why certain information spreads faster and farther than other information and why it is that we sometimes believe things that are false even when we're given evidence to counter that. I just think the psychology of belief is absolutely fascinating. So what skills are necessary to recognize uh, the viral BS in medicine and sciences? It's critical thinking, really. You know, if you think about it, it comes down to the ability to read critically, to weigh and assess information, to not just do fact checking, but to do source checking, and to be really aware of what it is that makes up the health information ecosystem. So these are all the things that I teach in the, I talk about in the book, but that I teach formally and that I study as well. And I think it's really important not to be overwhelmed by the scale of the problem of health and science misinformation and disinformation. Because, you know, you can just feel like, oh my gosh, I can't even keep up. But I think it's important to remember there are things that you can do, but also bear in mind it is complicated and that you don't want to oversimplify this. Again, just coming down to this idea that that we have evidence that if somebody believes something and it's based on false information, say that person believes wholeheartedly, they've read studies and they really, really believe vaccines cause autism, then what the social psychologists and the communications researchers say to us is if you just tell that person, you're wrong. Here are 20 studies of 10 million children each that show vaccines do not cause autism. That approach often does not work. 
And so we have to make sure that we understand how complicated the psychology of belief is and social psychology is, that we understand that people don't just share information um, because they're trying to get information across. It's also about emotionally triggering information that goes viral a lot more and that there's more motive to sharing stuff than it's just about sharing information. It's also about being part of a community, about sharing and reaffirming perspectives that confirm a certain look at the world, if that makes sense. And so it is complicated, and I think it's important to remember that so that we don't just turn to simplistic methods of correcting, quote-unquote, correcting people by, oh, what you believe is wrong, here's the facts. That can backfire. It's not very effective. And so we need to do more personalized, more localized, more thoughtful and more evidence-based ways of countering false information. That's really crucial points about uh, this emotional level of uh, where misinformation can really get into. So uh, I was just going to say, I think it's really important to remember that emotional aspect of it. A couple of years ago, um, there was this study that came out of MIT that generated these headlines. The headline said something like false information travels faster and farther than the truth. And I mean, that kind of thing alone can make people like, oh, my gosh, we're never going to get a handle on this problem. But when you look at why false information goes viral more than accurate information. A lot of it is to do with emotion and the fact that it can, the false information is often really good at pushing our buttons, making us feel angry, disgusted, hateful, maybe really optimistic, some kind of emotion. And that's what triggers us believing it and sharing it and making it go viral. Is there a way to tackle misinformation in the same way on the emotional level? I think you start off, and this is a bit of a medical approach, but like, you know, in in medicine, when you're trying to fight a disease, the first thing to do is to make a really accurate and good diagnosis, and then to come up with a plan based on that. So I think acknowledging that sharing information is about emotion, which you would think, no, what's it got to do with emotion? I'm just trying to share a fact. Actually recognizing and realizing that as humans, we're very emotional beings, that emotion is central to that can be really useful for helping you check your feelings, for helping you consider what I call the woe factor. So when you read something on your Twitter, your Facebook, and it makes you go, whoa, that's weird, or that's wild, or I've never read that before. Something is triggering an emotional reaction in you. That's a red flag. And it may may not be that that information Mm. is false, but it definitely is a red flag to alert you to do some due diligence check. Is this accurate? Is this coming from a credible source? Is this uh, being reported by other credible sources? And of course, you know, I mentioned Facebook. Uh, It's hard on Facebook to separate a piece from the New York Times from a piece that's written by any other website that really is not credible. So, you know, it gets it gets complicated. But I certainly think that woe feeling um, is important because that feeling is often what triggers us to believe something and to share it widely. That's really interesting. So you basically preemptively equip yourself to not be in um, a sort of attacked or being influenced too much by, uh, by what yeah. you read, is it? Yeah, like kind of having your guard up a little bit. So just so you're aware, mm. um, and I like to kind of reverse engineer from the stuff that goes viral. Okay, this is full of nonsense. This Facebook post or this tweet, it went viral. It got millions of shares. 
instead of just getting upset about that, let's understand why, what is it about these 280 characters or whatever, this Facebook post that allowed it to go viral. And from there you can see, okay, the things that go viral often are very emotionally triggering. They're offering something that purportedly seems new. And these things offer us status points, hierarchy points, because we feel like, oh, I haven't come across this before. This is brand new. Haven't seen it reported elsewhere. I bet my friends haven't seen it. I'll share it. I'll be the first to disseminate this information. And we may not be making these choices like very consciously, but we're told by psychologists and social psychologists that this is what's occurring as we process new information. We're thinking, I'm going to share it and I'll be the first one to have shared something. So then in turn, you can use that as a red flag. Like if something seems really new, okay, why is that? Is it that it really is legitimate news that just broke? Or is it that someone is sending something and claiming something that's false? So those are really important red flags to look out for. Excellent. And if we zoom out to the systems level, how important is it to tackle misinformation on those higher levels as compared to individuals? Oh, it's all connected, the macro and the micro. So it's really important to work on both levels. On the individual level, I think about what we just talked about, like giving people the critical thinking skills required Giving people access to information, access to broadband internet is now finally being understood as a social determinant of health. But if you don't have access to broadband internet, you don't have access to good local journalism, you're susceptible to believing more falsehoods, right? Because you're not being empowered with accurate information. Then on the other hand, moving away from the individual to kind of like a systems level approach we need accountability across social media platforms because currently the algorithms are really incentivizing engagement with that emotionally triggering, often false information. So we need changes uh, and we need education and we need innovation at these various levels, all the way from the macro down to the micro. So are you optimistic about our increasing ability to recognize the misinformation and uh, equip ourselves (laughs) against it? Overall, yes. Of course, I have my days where I'm like really annoyed or just like, oh, my cousin sent me something that's totally false. Like how, why are people falling for this? Overall, yes. Um, And I think we're human. We're allowed to get frustrated and, and fed up. And especially when it comes to powerful platforms, when it comes to people who have influence and power, government, celebrities, it can get worrying when those people with the vast influence they have are the ones peddling misinformation. And that's why I'm really passionate about people being equipped with the skills to critically appraise the things that are said to them. Excellent. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on? So Viral BS, my book about medical myths and why we fall for them, came out in January of 2021. And now I am working on a book about false news and false information for young adults, kind of with that belief and very much that hope that we start people young at being really good at critical thinking and good at appraising information, then it can safeguard them for the rest of their lives. That's really interesting. So it's specifically uh, targeted at the young, younger people. Exactly. Yeah. Young teenagers. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So where uh, uh, our listeners can find more information about your work, but also about the book? Uh, you can find work uh, information on my research and on my book on my website, simayasmin.com. 
And also on my Twitter, I'm at Dr. Yasmin. And the book, probably in all the bigger um, retailers and also the small uh, bookshops, right? Yep, it's available everywhere that books are sold. If possible, please support your local independent booksellers. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much and be safe. Take care.